If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them actually to, Gen uh, to uh, Galatians 3. And the question that we're going to answer is, who is Abraham's seed? I, I debated, in, in a sense, um, not necessarily directing us to this message today. We had walked through a lot of Genesis 15, talking through various theological concepts over the past several weeks before I took a couple of weeks off for others to fill the pulpit in Sunday morning, at least. And we had walked through, dependent on Genesis 15, verse 6, where the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. We walked through various truths from the scripture that are connected to that verse. We talked in Romans 4 about justification by grace through faith alone. Saved by grace through faith. And we talked through how that's connected all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where the Bible says, Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then we talked about James chapter 2, where James thought through the connection between faith and works. Faith without works is dead, being alone, James tells us in James 2. And we said, how, how can we reconcile that with salvation by grace through faith alone? And we discussed how it is in, very true that salvation is by grace through faith alone and that we, as those who have sinful souls, are justified, our sinful souls are justified by faith, but that our, our faith is justified by works. In other words, if we have faith, it will invariably and inevitably work itself out in our lives in the manner that we live our lives. And so we thought through that, and we did that because James, in James 2, also invokes this quote in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And then finally we went to Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, where we learned that faith is not just something connected to salvation, but also to the Christian life. And so that if I begin by exercising faith, then the manner in which I live as a Christian ought to also be by faith and that we do not fall into a works-based system once we have exercised faith unto salvation, but that it's faith from beginning to end. And, and of course, Paul also there invokes Galatians 5, verse 16, Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But there was one more thing that, that I had intended to address and, and then I thought, well, maybe I won't because I feel like we're getting bogged down a little bit and I'd just like to move on. <clears throat> but I'd like to address it today. And I'd like to address it for, for a couple of, of different reasons. One of the reasons why I'd like to address it is because it is uh, a, a question that gets bantered around in Christian circles quite a bit. We've already talked, and we'll, we'll readdress it today as we talk about how we interpret the Scriptures. We, as we approach the Scriptures, we interpret the Scriptures. Uh, what, the, the way that we describe it is naturally, grammatically, contextually, and historically. And the old word that was used instead of naturally was literally, but that got taken too literally. So we change it to naturally so that we recognize that the Bible is made up of very, very, very many different styles. There's historical narrative, there's poetry, uh, there's parables, there's uh, 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 apocalyptic literature, which is full of illusion and full of metaphor and full of visions and full of uh, exaggerations, what we would call in literature hyperbole. And because of that, we want to be careful that we don't become hyper-literalists, but rather that we recognize how the Bible is being written, the intent of the text, and what we are trying to do by doing a natural, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation is we're trying to discern what God meant when he had this book written. 
It doesn't matter what I think it says. It matters what God thinks it says. I'm not accountable to God for what I think his word says. I'm accountable to him for what he has told me. And so this is the framework that we have put in place to protect ourselves against going in various directions. And, and I, I, I presented that to you in Genesis 12 because I wanted you to know the manner in which I interpret the word of God because that's going to make a big difference in how we interpret Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, and, and, and particularly that section of scripture. And so we've talked through that. We've talked about our relationship to the ideas of the covenants. We've talked about our relationship to how God acts between times and circumstances, the different ages, uh, the different periods of time, uh, the way he acted with Israel, the way he acted, uh, acts towards the church, and how those interact with each other. We talked about the relationship between Israel and the church. And, and, and this message today uh, connects to that all the more. Uh, it connects us a little bit more to that idea of what is the relationship between the church and Israel in the question that is answered, who is Abraham's seed? And the reason why I, I determined that I, I want to go ahead and preach this message today, and uh, I, I'm sensitive to not getting bogged down, but I'm also sensitive to saying what needs to be said, is because last week, of course, there was this uh, terror attack uh, by Hamas against Israel. And as is very commonly the case when this happens, uh, the two very distinct factions of the Christian church start talking to one another. Talking is a friendly word for the way that the two factions of the Christian church start interacting with one another. There's the wing of the Christian church that supports Israel, whatever that means. And then there's the wing of the Christian church that absolutely does not, whatever that means. And I'm going to address the issues that are happening in Israel in three or four weeks. Um, within the scope of timing, as we exposit the text, we will very soon be in Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16, Abraham has a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael, uh, well, he doesn't have the son named Ishmael yet, but Hagar is, uh, has a... Uh, um, it con uh, conceives and then has the son and then there's Ishmael and then God makes some promises to Hagar as it relates to Ishmael. And then God makes some promises to Abraham as it relates to Isaac. And the interaction with Isaac and Ishmael was the seed of what we see today in the Middle East. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit when we get there in just a few weeks. And I'm pleased that there will be some time because there's a lot that has yet to play out before we talk about it together. But we are going to talk about it together. And the disagreements that are, are found in the Christian church as it relates to these things, they're not unfounded disagreements. It is not as if one side is evil and one side is good. I'm not saying in the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, that's not what I'm, I'm saying in, in the disagreement in the Christian church about this. But the disagreement does come from somewhere. And this is one of those things that sometimes we forget when we are talking about disagreements in the church, is that those disagreements come from somewhere. And generally speaking, whether or not those disagreements end in a place where someone is very right and someone is very wrong, at some point it began with everybody just kind of read the Bible a little differently. 
Now, sometimes people intentionally read the Bible differently because they're trying to justify their sin. Sometimes people read the Bible differently because they were wrong for a long time and then they realized that they were wrong, but they didn't want to admit that they were wrong, so they double down and then they like start a cult, right? Sometimes people read the Bible wrongly specifically because religion is a real moneymaker and they just want to make money. But a lot of times, at least within the genuine Christian church, the disagreements come from the fact that when we read our Bibles, we read them slightly differently. We come from different places of interpretation. Now, that does not mean that someone isn't right and someone isn't wrong. In most of those discussions, someone's right, someone's wrong, or they're both wrong. But it's worth at least understanding where we come from when we start to talk through these things. So this week, as we've done throughout the course of this Genesis 15, early Genesis 15 series of messages, I'm going to introduce to you a little bit more of what the particular perspective that Legacy Baptist Church has as it relates to what we would generally call a, a, a dispensational perspective might uh, see as it relates to this question of who is Abraham's seed. And we'll also see how it, how, how it is then that there are people who read Galatians chapter 3 and they combine that with other observations and assumptions and they say, well, you know what? I think differently. And we'll talk about why we don't agree with that difference. But all of that is going to help us lay the foundation for our thinking as we get to not, well, I mean, it'll be everything as it relates to the Word of God, because that's the lens through which we interpret it, but also perhaps understanding why other people don't necessarily have that lens, and the pros and the cons, the dangers, and the maybe values of such. So in Galatians chapter 3, it was in that passage where Paul spoke to the idea of the character and the identity of Abraham's seed connected to the promise given in Genesis 15. And what we're going to do today is we're going to think through Paul's teaching in Galatians 3 regarding the identity and the character of Abraham's seed. We're going to compare this with New Testament teachings uh, of Paul in order that we can rightly orient ourselves to the promises of God that were made to Abraham on that day. Now, I, uh, looking through this message, I, I, the one thing that maybe I should have done is made it a little more thorough. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a particularly long message today. Maybe that's because it's built upon the things that I've already said, which you can go back and listen to online on YouTube or on Sermon Audio on our website. Um, maybe I'm not thorough enough on this particular topic. I don't often say that, but that may be the case here. Um, but um, it, it, it is what it is, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes this morning. Paul's teaching in Galatians chapter 3 lends itself to the possibility that God's promises to Abraham were not actually made to the physical lineage of Abraham, not physically made to the children of those who would be called the children of Israel, but only to a subset of those in Israel who would exercise faith in God and also to those outside of Israel who would put their faith in God and thus be, in the words of Romans chapter 11, grafted into the olive tree. Now, I do not believe that that's what that passage means directly. We've talked through that several times. I believe that that olive tree is not the olive tree of, uh, of salvation directly, but the olive tree of God's purposes and what God is doing. The olive tree of, I'll use the word election, but that's a very loaded word. 
when we talk about election at Legacy Baptist Church, we are not talking directly because the Bible does not use the word election directly related to salvation. The Bible uses the word election directly related to the concept of purpose. And every single place where you find the ideas of election and predestination, you find it connected to purpose, not to salvation. And so we see things a little bit differently. That's what we're talking about today. But this has lent a wing of the Christian church to the conviction that God's promises have never been to the nation of Israel as a people, or at the very least does not any longer exist for them, but rather has been transferred to the church. We disagree with this. We believe that there is still a plan that God has for a physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've talked through that in various uh, forms throughout early Genesis as well as in our Amos series that we preached before I got into Mark. But let's talk through some of these things this morning and see why it is that this possibility is there and what we do with it. I'm going to begin by just bubbling up what we read in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Notice that. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. One more thing I neglected to mention uh, before we really get started today that, that I want to mention as well. We are talking today about concepts that are built upon methods of interpretation. I've been very transparent and made very clear what our method of interpretation is. And it's this method of interpretation that has led to the conclusions that I come to today. What we are building as we do this is necessary. We build this necessary framework because outside of it, we cannot relate ourselves properly to Scripture at all. But we also acknowledge that we are building systems to understand the Scriptures, which means we acknowledge that we, as flawed humans, are building systems in order to try to organize and understand what God has said. It's necessary, but it also means that there is a human element to it. And what that means this morning is that everything that Pastor Wickler has said over these past many weeks on Genesis might not be 100% accurate. One of the things I absolutely love about preaching the Word of God is that when I can open the Word of God and I can say, thus saith the Lord, it's not about me. It's not about whether I'm right or wrong. It's not about whether you like me or don't like me. It's about what God has said and that's what I'm busy doing. But the fact of the matter is, there's also a lot of things in the scriptures that take a perspective that we have to choose. We seek to choose the perspective that makes the most sense within a, a worldview. But your pastor is not infallible. I've made mistakes before. I will make mistakes again. I've been wrong before. I will be wrong again. When I know that to be true, I get up and behind this pulpit and I tell you so. I tell you I'm wrong. I've corrected myself. I will continue to do that, and I always will. But we believe what we believe because we believe it's true. 
If we didn't believe it was true, if we didn't believe that it was the right way, we wouldn't be, be believing it. And so we stand on what we know. We do so with humility. Right? I'm giving you a perspective based upon what I have already told you as to how it is I interpret the scriptures and how it is that our general orthodox uh, building on the, the, the shoulders of those who have gone before us methods of interpreting the scriptures. We believe we see the fruit in lives, in history of this method of, of interpretation as being right and good. It bears good spiritual fruit. So we stick to it. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we have not made mistakes and it does not mean we're right about everything. We keep that in mind as we walk through these foundational thoughts. I'm going to tell you why it is we believe what we believe. Along those way, we're going to make some judgment calls. That's okay. But we also walk away parsing what is thus saith the Lord and what is what we build on top of it. Okay, so we read again these promises, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. We find that God's promise to Abraham is that his seed would become a great multitude, innumerable as the stars. And our natural assumption, one which uh, not only we would naturally assume, but by the way, which Abraham and his descendants naturally assumed, is that this promise pertains directly to Abraham's children and his children's children, so that he is made a great nation and that this nation would be from a great people. But then we come to Galatians chapter 3. And Paul makes a very interesting argument there. Verses 6 through 14, we read this. Even as Abram believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, that's where we saw Galatians 15 verse 6. He says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified... By the law and the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the law, excuse me, from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we step into the first part of Paul's argument regarding Abraham's faith and its relation to we who are in what we call the church. And his argument begins by reasoning that the gospel was in fact preached to Abraham when God promised that in Abraham, that would be in Genesis 12 verse 3, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul connects this promise directly to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, thus concluding that they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, saying in verse 7, Know ye therefore that they which are faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Okay, so this is somewhat unambiguous. 
This is actually quite uncontroversial. That when God says that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed, God was directly referencing the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, through whom salvation would extend to all men and women who are willing to receive it. So that verse 14 says plainly, Galatians 3.14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles by virtue of our connection with Jesus Christ and that, namely, the blessing of the promise of the Spirit of God, which comes to us by faith. So we know that that promise, that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed, that promise is ours. That promise looked forward to Jesus Christ. That promise is one that we are yoked unto by grace through faith. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, when we receive the Spirit of God indwelling us, we are yoked to that promise. And so Paul said in verse 7, in that, in, in that we are the children of Abraham. But does that mean, and this is the question, does that mean that all of the promises of Genesis 15 of Genesis 12, that all of those things that God promised to Abraham, does that mean they all apply to the church? Well, we, uh, the, the, the particular promise that was mentioned by Paul is Genesis 12, 13. Does any of that even have anything to do with Genesis 15? We continue then in Galatians, looking at verses 15 through 18. Paul says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He's speaking of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which we will speak of in Genesis 6, uh, at the end of Genesis 15, excuse me. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Not, uh, he saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 400 year and 30 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, take note of this thing as we're walking through Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is not about whether or not you and I are Abraham's seed. Galatians 3 is about whether or not you and I are under the law. So we are actually taking this outside of Paul's intended. We, we are, the argument is about a circumstantial reference within the text in order to prove a different point that the church has then used and taken to establish its relationship to Abraham in this way. And that's not necessarily wrong or unfounded, but do take note that this is not the purpose of Paul's writing here. He is not writing to tell us our relationship to Abraham. He is writing to tell us our relationship to the law. And the idea is this, that God made a promise to Abraham and the promise to Abraham was realized in Jesus Christ. In other words, the promise that God made to Abraham was a promise of grace, grace through faith. And then there came another law, another covenant, 430 years later. That covenant is called the Mosaic Law. And Paul's argument here is that the fact that the Mosaic Law came 430 years later cannot undo, disannul, or invalidate the promise that was made 430 years before, which means that promise is still in effect. 
And then, of course, he would go on to say that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the law was in place temporarily for a time until the one promised in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, would come. And when he came, the law was no longer necessary in that functional role that it served because the lawgiver had come and fulfilled the law in himself. That's the argument in Galatians 3. From that, though, Paul starts saying this stuff about Abraham's seed, and this perks the interest of, of people in the church. What is Paul saying there? What does he mean we are Abraham's seed? What does it mean we are the children of Abraham? So there are several things happening here in these verses. Paul calls the readers back to his broader argument that believes... Uh, um, that belief is not uh, that believers, excuse me, are not called to live under the legal system of works, but rather under a spiritual system of grace. He argues that that law, which came 430 years after the covenant of grace, could not override the covenant of grace. And it's here where the controversy truly arises. Paul says in verse 16, regarding the promises unto Abraham and to his seed. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So Paul makes a very nuanced literary argument here. Paul was a smart guy. He was a very nuanced guy. It's why a lot of the doctrine is given through him. Peter actually acknowledges in his letters that Paul's writings are hard to be understood. And so we take it to be so. And he's making a very nuanced argument that all throughout the Old Testament, when God makes and reiterates his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did not say that the promise was to Abraham and to his seeds, as in many, but to his seed, as in one. And that seed, Paul says, is Christ, expressing that the promise that was made to Abraham and to his seed, who would come from him, that being Christ, would be these things. And this is said explicitly in verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by, the hand, by angels in the hand of a mediator. We've talked through that passage before and the idea of the law being ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Fascinating idea there. Not something we can get into today. So the seed that should come is very evidently Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is entirely consistent with what we have studied from the very beginning, from Genesis 3. Do you recall that after Adam and Eve fell, and they took of that, that fruit in the garden, and then God said that there was coming a day where there would be the seed of the woman that would, that would bruise the head of the serpent. And we started tracing this theme of a seed. And then Abel is killed by Cain, and Seth is born, and, and Eve's statement is, God has given me another seed. And then we start tracing this seed. And we actually start tracing both the seed of Cain and of Seth. Right? We trace the seed of Cain unto this man named Lamech. And we see a group of men who had their portion in this life. And then we trace the other seed, the seed of Seth, through a man named Enoch, and then through a man named Noah. And then once we get to the other side of the flood, we see again this concept of the seed come up as Noah curses Canaan, blesses Shem, and says that Japheth will dwell in Shem's tents. And so we are seeing, we are tracing a lineage 
but we're tracing it unto an end, unto an end that was a promise that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would become the seed of the woman that would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. So we're tracing a theme, and it makes perfect sense then, right? Galatians 3 makes perfect sense with, with Genesis 3, that there is this seed. There is this theme of the seed. But what do we know from the Bible about those who have believed in and who have accepted Jesus' finished work? What we know from the Bible in relation to this promise given to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed, that it was realized through the Spirit in Jesus' work, we know that we are called, we who have accepted Christ as our Savior, are called co-inheritors with Christ, right? So that the blessing that came to Christ would bless every nation on earth, specifically those from the nation who would accept Jesus as Savior. Not every single person in every nation. The blessing that was given to Abraham, that in, all, that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed, realized in Jesus Christ and in those who would come to Christ by faith. So that then the final verse of, verses of Galatians 3 tell us this. Verses 26 to 29. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, writing here to believers. He's not saying everybody on earth. He's saying these believers. For as many of you as, been baptized, as has been, have been excuse me, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed." and heirs according to the promise. And this is where we find the final bit of controversy. If you are Christ's, then by virtue of being in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, because you and I are co-inheritors with Christ to that promise that was given to Abraham, specifically here speaking of the one in Genesis 12, verse 3 actually. We are heirs according to the promise. And what this has led many to conclude is that when God made all of these promises to Abraham, that they fell, they all fell into the church's inheritance. And this is not an unreasonable thought, is it? But maybe it's also not a completely consistent thought with Scripture. And we don't have to go far in Genesis to see where this inconsistency might lie. And when we start to see those inconsistencies, that's where we perhaps try to branch beyond just the simplistic and think through other ways that God can both say very clearly that we are Abraham's seed by grace through faith, and also that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that seem to state with very little controversy, that God has the plan for this physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that somehow those two things can pair together, can function together. And the reason why we might think this is because we actually don't find Paul's reference here to be Genesis 15, at least related to the promise itself. We find the promise that's being referenced by Paul here in Galatians 3 to be the Genesis 12 promise. The promise that he cites is specifically the promise that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. 
Now we know, as I've said, that the theme of the seed in the Old Testament is definitely talking about Jesus Christ going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And if we hold that theme properly, then we find that this promise, specifically the, 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 the promise of blessing the nations, was realized in Christ. But is that the only context of the seed? Is that the only context of these promises in, Galatians, uh, in Genesis chapter 15? If we skip ahead two chapters in Genesis, to Genesis 17, in verses 7 through 9, we read this. God speaking to Abraham. He says, And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, we don't have to go far in Genesis, past 15, to see that there is a pluralistic idea related to the idea of the seed. Pastor, you're saying that Paul is incorrect when he says that the word seed is singular and not plural. Therefore, it's speaking of one man, Jesus, and not many men. No, I'm not saying that at all as it relates to the promise that in Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. I do not believe that God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed would be rooted in the physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. That's what they thought until Jesus came, and then Jesus said, you're wrong about that. And Jesus said, all who will come unto me I will in no wise cast out. Hence why we see this preaching in Paul's letters where he says there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female, but we are all one in Christ. But does that mean that God has not given promises to the physical lineage? Well, notice we see this idea here that God, God says to Abraham in Genesis 17 that he will establish a covenant between himself and between Abraham and his seed after him in their generations. Not in a singular generation as in the generation where Christ would come, but in the generations of those who would come after Abraham. He continues then. For an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Verse 8. And I will give unto thy seed and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you. Notice we switched from thy to you. Singular to plural there in our King James Bibles. Remember in our King James Bibles, when you see thee, thou, thine, or thy, it's not there because they want it to sound old. It's not even there because that's how they talked in that day. It's there because in both Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek, there's singular, there, there's the second person pronoun has both a singular and a plural. We don't have that in English. So they sought for a way to designate the difference between singular and plural in the second person pronoun. And they use thee, thou, thine to designate a second person singular pronoun. And they used you, yet, your, and ye to designate a second person plural pronoun. So when we see God saying to Abraham, in thee I will do this, for thee and for thy generations I will do this. He's talking to Abraham. But then he says this thing in verse 10. He says, this is my covenant which ye shall keep. Who is ye? The generations that will come between me and you and thy seed after thee. We switch back to singular. We're switching back and forth between singular and plural here. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. 
So God promises that he will establish a covenant with Abraham and with his seed. And notice in this context, the seed here is not referenced as one. It's referenced as many. The plural is used. The seed of Abraham and their generations. You, ye, your generations. And to this we might say, well, yes, of course, pastor. Abraham and all of the generations that would follow Abraham into faith, right? The generations of the church, the generations of Jew and Gentile alike. And we could say that, but we have a problem if we try to say that. What is the sign that God establishes here as the sign of this covenant between him and his generations by which he says he'll give them the land? It's the covenant of circumcision. Now, if I step into my New Testament, I find that the covenant of circumcision is quite explicitly said not to matter in the Christian church. Paul makes this very clear in several epistles, doesn't he? Including, including Galatians itself. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. For in Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now, of course, there's always a way around every argument, right? So one could say, sure, pastor, but God promised to circumcise the hearts of people in Jeremiah 31. And that must be the circumcision that God is speaking of in, in Abraham's day when he says, this is the sign that I'll give to you, the sign of circumcision. It must have been the circumcision of the hearts. Abraham got it all wrong with the physical circumcision and, 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 and all of this. Um, but now we're doing something that we don't want to do. We're stepping outside of natural interpretation and we're falling into a spiritualization and a metaphor, metaphoricalization of the text that puts us on very, very dangerous ground. And if we want to go that route, nothing means anything anymore in the text. And that's simply not a place I'm comfortable going because it puts us on very shaky ground. And it, con it conditions interpretation upon my capacity to play this spiritual game of twister with the text and contort myself into all sorts of strange shapes to make the text say what I think it ought to say. Instead, let's allow the text to speak for itself and then let's try to reconcile that. And you know what? When we have to do that, there's sometimes where something weird happens. And that weird thing that happens is that a pastor has to get behind a pulpit and he has to say, you know what? I don't know. And sometimes that has to happen. But far better for someone to get up, for you or for me, when they're talking to someone and they're demanding answers or asking for answers, far better for me to say, you know what? Here's what I know. I know that Paul has said that we are Abraham's children, that we are Abraham's seed. I know that a part of what God said to Abraham as it related to his seed is that it would be their covenant, their land, and it would be in their generations, and it would be the sign of the circumcision, <laughs> try that word again, circumcision sealing it all. And I also know that in the New Testament, Paul spent an awful lot of time fighting with the Jews about the fact that circumcision is not necessary in the church. And when I put all of that together, I have to say that it doesn't fit cleanly unless I change the way I think. So I'm going to change the way I think rather than try to change what the Bible says. And if that means that there's some things that are some gray areas, I'm going to be okay with that. And I'm going to do the best I can. And those gray areas, as a general rule, are not going to become areas of tremendous division. They're not going to become the, the hills that I die on because there's some gray there. Now, of course, they have become division in the church and they have become hills to die on. And we talked just this morning in Sunday school about some of the reasons why that is. For better or for worse, it's just human. 
And we don't, we don't get to get rid of that. Not this side of eternity. So one of our central tenets is that God wrote the Bible to be understood, right? But if it is, in fact, the case that God intended the sign of the circumcision to be the Holy Spirit's baptism in the heart of the believers of Christ, so that the sign of circumcision was never intended to be the removal of the physical foreskin of the male children, then God has created a very confusing mishmash of mixed metaphors, which can only serve to confuse people. And I don't believe God did that. Because I believe God wrote this book for us to understand. I don't believe that I have to become a 33rd degree Christian to understand this book. I don't believe that I have to become a Greek or a Hebrew scholar to understand this book. I believe that God has given us something that he wants the generations to know and to understand. I believe that God has given us a book so that we can know him because he wants us to know him. That's what I believe. I believe the Bible says that quite, quite plainly. And that leaves some things on the table for us so that we can have confidence that if we stick to God's word, then there's a way for us to understand these things in a manner that makes sense. So we ask then, can two things possibly be true at once? Is it possible that there were promises made to Abraham for his blood lineage and also that there were promises made to Abraham that are rooted in Christ that are for all men of all generations who would come to Christ by faith? And I don't think that that's a very hard intellectual leap even to make. I think we can do that. Remember, when we were talking about the covenants, this was several weeks ago now, we established a couple of truths. First, that Romans chapters 9 through 11 make it relatively clear, at least the way I present it and, and, and the way I read it, that God still has a plan for his people, the nation of Israel. Those are those who Paul called my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I think Romans 9 through 11 is, is, is pretty strongly advocating for that. Second, we also established that from that passage, that God has not been able to bring those promises to fruition. That God has not been able to give the, the physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything that he promised to them. And there was a reason why, and that's because those promises must, as all of God's promises must, it must be received or appropriated by faith. And Israel rejected that faith when they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now, that doesn't mean that God rejected Israel. It means that Israel is not yet able to receive that which God has promised for her because she has not yet come into faith. That's what Paul argues. Finally, we established from Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that there was coming a day when the nation would be saved, when they would enter into faith. And when they do enter into faith, then God can finally give them that which he promised them. Because the gifts and the calling of God, Paul says in Romans 11, are without repentance. And that though this, that through this salvation, God can finally give them what he has promised to them. And to make this clear, let's go back and take a look at that chart that I put up. Hopefully that'll, that'll if, 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 if you didn't listen to those sermons, I encourage you to listen to them because there's a lot of back teaching there, right? My, my sermons tend to kind of build on one another. There's a lot of back teaching there. But God made spiritual promises realized exclusively through faith in Christ. All who receive these promises by faith are ushered into the same standing in Christ. Justification by grace through faith. But there have also been promises made to others, haven't there? There have been promises made to the nation of Israel. There have been promises made directly to the church. 
There have been promises made to David, haven't there? For Israel to pass through the promises of the new covenant, however, they must first pass through the promises of the Mosaic covenant. Now, Deuteronomy 33 and 34 told us this. Remember when we went to those passages? And what did we read in Deuteronomy 33 and 34? We read a prophetic laying out of what Israel would do with the Mosaic promises. They would receive the blessings. They would receive the cursings. And do you recall at the end what, what, what it said? When you have received all these things, the blessings and the cursings, then I'll, 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 I'll receive you. Do you remember what one of those cursings was? The final cursing in Deuteronomy 33 and 34 was that Israel would be scattered to the winds of the nations. And then that following that, there would be a regathering and then an establishment of a new covenant with them. All of that is promised in Deuteronomy 33 and 34 in the law. So then in history, we start tracing these promises. And we start tracing the promises of the Mosaic Covenant. And we recognize that on the day that Jesus came, he offered the kingdom but it was rejected. And then they were scattered to the winds. We know that that happened. And that's where we find ourselves today, right? We find ourselves in a world where God's people, who are God's people, pastor? Lots of genetic arguments, all of those sorts of things. God knows. But prophetically, they are scattered to the wind. And we await the day that God will regather them to himself. Now, in the meantime, the Gentiles have been ushered into those same spiritual promises. The promises, as a matter of fact, Paul specifically said in Galatians that the reason why God allowed this thing to happen where Israel would reject their Messiah was so that the gospel could come to the Gentile nations, so that we could be ushered into those same promises. The promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, not necessarily the promise of the blessing through Christ, the promise of the seed going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. But God has also given different physical promises. You know, God has not promised us that our future will involve David ruling and reigning over us as a nation delivered from our enemies. I don't expect that I am going to be ruled and reigned over by David in the kingdom. I'm going to be, I expect that I'm ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom. David has a place over a nation and that nation has been promised that they would have David rule and reign over them in the kingdom. I have been promised to be a co-regent with Christ in the kingdom. Co-heir to his promises. Those are different promises founded on different ideas in different contexts. So then it's absolutely true that all the promises of Genesis 12 through 15 must go through the seed who is Christ. And in line with that spiritual legacy, you and I are most certainly a part of that spiritual seed. We are in Christ. However, it is also true that various of those promises are given to the seed of Abraham in their generations. Promises which must still be received in Christ by faith, but which are reserved uniquely for that physical lineage. So that two things can be true at the same time. The church is the seed of Abraham's spiritual lineage. But there's also a physical lineage yet dependent upon Christ and the realization of their inheritance, given physical promises 
sealed by a physical sign that is the sign of the circumcision, the sign which the church is not under and has not been yoked to. Distinct in character. As reflected, not necessarily in the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12 through 15, but most certainly in the promises that are given later on in the text in Deuteronomy in 2 Samuel 14 as God gives promises to David. And in the prophets as God promises Israel's future. It is, we talked about this in the book of Amos. It is not an accident that regularly within the scope of the prophetic text, God says that his promises will rest upon, he doesn't use the word Israel, he uses the word Jacob. Why would he use the pre-covenant name? Well, maybe because God knew that there was coming a day where there would be a group of, of believers who would read Israel and interpret these things and say, well, the church must have become Israel. We must be the Israel of God. Therefore, these promises are for us. And so instead of using the name Israel every time, God throughout the prophecies regularly used the, the, the promises would go to Jacob. There's an argument that can be rightfully made that you and I are a part of a, a, a body that we could call an Israel. But don't you dare call me a Jacob. <laughs> I'm not a Jacob spiritually. And we're not Jacobs by lineage. Some of us may be, right? Some of us have Jewish blood. But, but, but in, in a Gentile context, we're not Jacobs by blood. And in a spiritual context, you don't want to be called a Jacob. And so who's the promise to when he talks about giving promises to Jacob, the future of Jacob? All of these things lend us to the fact that two things can be true at the same time. That there is a spiritual legacy that was started, not even just with Abraham, but that was established in Abraham. And that spiritual legacy established in Abraham foresaw the day of Jesus Christ. And that you and I, when we came to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, yoked ourselves to that spiritual legacy of Abraham. And that is absolutely true. But there is also quite a bit in the text that would lend us to see, to believe that there's far too much going on with the physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's far too much language in there. There's far too many rituals. There's far too many covenants that just don't make sense as it relates to what we have in the church and the relationship that we have with Christ to say that everything is ours that was stated in that text. And so we walk in this place of what we attempt to call balance where we acknowledge both to be true and we allow each one to play themselves out in a manner that is rational and is as best we can biblically accurate so who is Abraham's seed well we are the children of Abraham by grace through faith But does that mean that there is no plan for a physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I do not believe so. Now, why did I spend my time on this today? I've already spoken about that a little bit. I, I, I feel like it's particularly uh, sensible considering the things that are going on geopolitically today, of which I will speak again. It'll be, it'll be about a month uh, of Sundays before we actually talk about it, and that'll be good. But the value is beyond that. First... 
I hope it adds clarity to the text in Galatians, which by God, God's grace will allow us to better understand what Paul is trying to say here and also try to not allow the, the, the argument as it relates to Abraham's seed to get in the way of what Paul is actually trying to say in the text. Because at least we've settled in our minds some of what can be said there. Second, because this contention is live and well in the church. One of the things that a modern pastor has to deal with that uh, pastors of previous generations did not nearly uh, uh, have to, to, to uh, contend against is this information age. Go back 100, 150 years and the pastor would just be able to sit at the front of the city and find that guy that comes in on his ox cart. And, and when he starts talking things that don't make sense biblically, you can just stand there and say, nope, that's not true. Then came the radio, then came the television, now comes the internet. And in your pocket, you can get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of sermons. And you can scroll through Facebook or TikTok or Twitter or whichever one you want to use. It's not Twitter anymore. And you can, through that, find people who give you little two-minute sound bites that are so well scripted and so well put together that throw into confusion everything you thought you knew. And I get you for a couple hours a week. That device in your pocket gets you for all of the other hours of the week. And so we have to be judicious with our time. And we have to try to hit the things that need to be hit when they come up. And so it's worth taking the time. Say, Pastor, I really didn't absorb all the arguments you said today. I, I, I'm, I'd have to listen to it five or six more times. That, that's fine. It's not why I, I did this today. But what I'd like is this. That the next time you're on Facebook or the next time you turn on that sermon and somebody's talking about how we're Israel or the next time you, you get into some sort of back and forth with your Christian friend uh, who's a replacement theologian and they, they have very good arguments, you can at least say this. You can say, wait a minute, at least my pastor's talked about this. At least you know there's another side. At least you know that people have thought about this before. Because we, being Americans, can, can get in this frame of reference, and, and young people more so than the rest, where we think that when we have a, an original thought, we think that it's actually an original thought. That no one's ever debated this before. Right? You get those atheists that, that, that get online and they, they, they throw out the great argument of the existence of God, thinking that no one's ever argued the existence of God before. Or that young man in the church who's just now realizing there's a debate between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And he gets up there and he realizes that he has solved in one Facebook post the great problem that thousands and thousands and thousands of books have been written on among theologians throughout generations on this sticky issue. But of course, that's, none of that's true. But we can get a little bit, we can get a little bit distracted sometimes, can't we? And that distraction can put us into a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole can get us into places that can sometimes be hard to climb out of. And so I mention these things to you today, not so that you can be able to articulate a very well thought out and sound theological argument to the next person that asks you about the relationship between the church and Abraham's seed but at least so that you can know that there was a time where you can go back in the annals of what Pastor Wickler has said and find those things 
Or at the very least, when the questions come into your mind because of some passage, you can say, I know there's another side to that story. But finally, the final reason, and let's, let's walk away with something that you can take with you. Anytime I do one of these more teachy, teachy sermons, there's, there's some really good, less teachy, a lot more um, motivational sermons coming up here. So um, I'm looking forward to getting back to a few of those. But anytime we do one of these, I want to remind you of something. <clears throat> Here we are talking about Genesis 15. And guess who we're actually talking about? Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, aren't we? We're talking about our relationship to Jesus. I, I rewind to Genesis chapter th 3, and guess who I was preaching about? Jesus. I went back to Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and guess who I was talking to you about? Jesus. We trace our Savior throughout the Old Testament, don't we? And we are reminded Peel away all the debates, peel away all the theology, peel away all of the back and forth, peel away all the, 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 those things, and let's remember here that this book has been talking about Jesus from the beginning. This book is about Jesus. What are we doing here? We are here to talk about Jesus. We are here to relate ourselves to Jesus. We are here to learn to love Jesus. We are here to learn to obey Jesus because this book has been anticipating Jesus until the day he came. And from that day, it's been looking back and telling us, walk the way he walked. Walk in his steps. Love as he loved. Forgive as he forgave. Do as he did. And by the way, you're not alone in doing it because he has given you of his spirit. This is what we're here to do. That seed, that seed of the woman in Genesis 3, that seed that God promised through whom all the nations would be blessed in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15, that seed has come. He was born. He lived. He taught. He died. He rose again from the dead and he did all of this that you might be right with God through him so that we might be co-heirs to the promise of faith so that we might follow in the legacy of faithful Abraham in our own lives. And this broad truth traced through hundreds of pages of scripture and thousands of years calls us to have a particular perspective on what you and I have in Christ. Many of us have been saved for many years, but let us not lose the wonder of what we have in Christ. I, I know that this is outside of the focus of what we focus today intellectually, but may even in this sort of intellectual thought process, may it draw us to remember that the weight of sin has been taken off of our shoulders by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was nailed to his cross so that we might be called the redeemed of the Lord. Let us not lose the weight of the privilege of what it means that we are children of Abraham by faith to join in the inheritance of the saints, to be able to sing with joy and with confidence that lovely hymn, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Don't allow what you have been given in Christ to become derivative, Christian. 
but instead let it motivate you to walk worthy of the glorious name unto which you have been called. Because here we are in Galatians 3, talking about Genesis 15, thinking through its relationship one to another, but what we're actually talking about is Jesus, as it ought to be. It's a name that's certainly worthy of our reverence. It's a name certainly worthy of our obedience, going all the way back to the very beginning. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.